Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. Today, we're featuring the second half of a fascinating interview with best-selling author Kitty Kelly. With fellow biographer Jack Farrell, Kitty Kelly talked about pushing past her fear of rejection to explore the lives of such influential figures as President George Herbert Walker Bush, Nancy Reagan, Frank Sinatra, and Oprah Winfrey. Uh, Most biographers don't write books about living people who can harm them, who can exclude them, who can say no to them. In fact, many journalists uh, were so disapproving when I wrote the Bush book. I mean, how could you? George Herbert Walker Bush was, you know, a pal. Many journalists still have kept the little notes that he's written. So to take on an unauthorized biography about a titan, and those are the only people you should really write them about, is hard. And I think you really have to have a support system because I was afraid a lot of times. So you have 900 interviews. You have a researcher who is researching and getting clips and... Not just clips, but you're filing freedom of information, you're getting police records, you're getting transcripts. I remember when I was doing Sinatra and went to Las Vegas, and I wanted the transcript of his testimony before the hearing to get his license renewal, because I wanted to see if he really did lie under oath. And I went to get a transcript, and they didn't want to give it to me. And I said, but it's public record. Well, we only have one copy here. Well, may I copy it? I don't know. I had the worst time getting that. And finally, do you know that they charged me $2.50 a page, and I paid over (laughs) 200-something to get that transcript? So people who don't know Frank Sinatra, but they knew that he didn't want this book written by this woman in Washington, D.C., they think they're helping Frank Sinatra in trying to deny you public access. Okay. So you got all this. Yeah. You must fill file cabinets and file boxes. How do you keep it all in your mind when you sit down to write? Well, you have your chronology. And I also set up files so that I had a month for every year of my subject's life. Then I had files alphabetical for every person that either I interviewed or he'd come in contact with. And then I had what I called subject files. So if I came to the point in the book where... I had to deal with writing about Frank Sinatra's mother, who was what they euphemistically called a midwife. In fact, this was another bone of contention with the publishing lawyers. 
They said, you can't write a book and call Frank Sinatra's mother an abortionist. You just can't do that. And I said, well, it's really very, very important because it shows what the financial support of the family was at that time. And that terminating a pregnancy was so scandalous. And yes, she was a midwife. And she would walk around Hoboken with a little black bag. People remembered her quite well. I needed to back that up, not only with records, but with interviews of people who had had abortions performed by Dolly Sinatra. Now, had Mrs. Sinatra been alive, she actually, of all the books I've written, is probably the most colorful figure I've encountered. So that's one interview you wish you could have got. Yes. This was a woman far ahead of her time, uneducated, so shrewd, so smart, so tough. I interviewed male friends of Sinatra's who'd grown up with him in Hoboken, and they said, our dads were afraid of her. Everyone was (laughs) afraid of her. And I said, well, why? You can't imagine she'd pick us up by the scruff of our collars and say that we had to get jobs. And she'd pull us down to City Hall and and make the aldermen hire us just to get us off the street. I mean, she was a force in her own right. And she stood up to Sinatra. I did have a wonderful interview with Frank Sinatra's live-in cleaning lady. And she said, oh, we were all afraid of Dolly. She said, one time I was in the kitchen and Mr. Sinatra had opened the refrigerator and he'd pulled out a carton of milk and he'd open it and he was drinking it out of the carton and Dolly walked in and smacked it out of his hands and said, grow up, that's not (laughs) respectable. And she said, he just turned around and said, oh, Ma, I was thirsty. Get a glass. So... How do you find Frank Sinatra's cleaning lady? Well, you do 900 and some interviews. And there's an old saying that genius is persistence in disguise. And sometimes it is so hard to keep going. It is so hard. I remember I would be so afraid to make a phone call to call Brad Dexter to talk about Frank Sinatra. This was the guy that saved him from drowning. I just knew he would say no. And again, it's that fear of rejection. And I would say every time I conquered the fear, but I I needed help in doing it. I didn't do it by myself. And every biography I feel is terribly, terribly important. And it's important to get it right because you've got so many people out there gunning for you ready to slap you down with one error that, you know, maybe I didn't need to do 1,000 interviews, Kitty. Maybe 500 would have done it. But by this time, you know, you've got lawyers breathing down your neck. Let me ask you one question, just just for the record here. All these great books, how many times have you had to print a correction? I never have. I knew that was the answer. That's why I asked you. I never have. But I will tell you this, on the Nancy Reagan book, you'd have CEOs, 
this one and that one. The Reverend Don Muma saying, I never gave her an interview. This Kitty Kelly lies. And when the Reagan's minister says that he never gave you an interview, a man of the cloth. By this point, though, the publisher called and said, we've got another one denying your interview. How are you going to uh, substantiate this? And I said, do you want the tape or do you want the transcript? He said, let me get this clear. You got a transcript of Muma? I said, yes. Fax it up, he said. <laughs> Fax it up. I also remember when you, were, you asked about getting people to talk, one of the toughest ones when I was doing the Reagan book was getting Lynn Nofziger. Interesting. He was great. But you finally had to convince him. Yeah. So when you say you tried and you tried and you tried to get somebody to talk to you, and finally they say yes, did you begin with one phone call? Did you begin with letters? Did you then get other people to approach him? I mean, what are the actual steps that make persistence work? Well, you have to embrace the persistence, and that's tough. And I think you start by telling the truth, why you want to interview Joe Jones, why Joe Jones is so important to you. So I would begin with a letter introducing yourself and why you want to interview Joe Jones. And then I'd follow up with a phone call and then another letter when you're turned down. And then you're going to be turned down again because Joe really didn't want to talk to you, especially didn't want to talk to you about the president he worked for or the president's wife. But you keep going because it's very, very important. I mean, this is the path I did when I wanted to interview Lynn Nofziger, who had been with Ronald Reagan from the very, very beginning when he ran for governor of California. By the time I was doing Nancy Reagan, he knew who I was, and I called. I wrote letters, and I told him why I would like to talk to him. I called his office. Let's say I called the office four times, and I would get the same woman, and we would start laughing on the phone because it was almost a ritual. Hi, Lynn. This is Kitty Kelly calling. I'm calling to see what the temperature is today for an interview with Lynn Nofziger, his secretary was Lynn. And we did this back and forth, and finally he said, well, he would see me for 10 minutes. And then she called, and she said she had to cancel. So I called the next week, and she said, I'm really sorry. I said, what's wrong? And she said, his daughter's in the hospital. And it was super serious. She was dying, and she had some kind of disease where they had to put on hazmat suits wow. to go into the room. And only paper was allowed or something. I found a paper flower, and I took the paper flower to Nofziger's secretary. And I said, this is supposed to be hyperallergenic. I said, you give it to him. Don't say it's for me, just you give it to him. And she called me back, and she said, that flower is the only thing allowed in her hospital room. 
oh, I said it was from you. And Lynn Knopfsiger agreed to see me. And we talked about his daughter. And his daughter died. And he invited people to come to the house. And he invited me. Well, I went to the funeral, I guess. Anyway, the gossip columnist for the Washington Times wrote a piece about this awful Kitty Kelly who barges into funerals to get her information. I was appalled when I got a call that night from Lynn Nossiger. He said, this is really disgusting. He said, I've just called the editor of the Washington Times and said, I demand an apology. And he took me to lunch the next day. If you stood Lynn Nofziger and our politics would probably never cross, but I have never met such a stand-up guy, ever. And to do it in the midst of his grief... So I owe the Reagans a thank you for coming across somebody that stand up. When I was writing the Bush book, George Herbert Walker Bush got incensed, and he said, Kitty Kelly is quoting me in a book changing my war hero story in a book by Doug Weed. I don't even know Doug Weed. I never sat down with Doug Weed. I never gave this interview. She's lying. And he said this to a columnist from Rhode Island. And so the columnist called me and said, I'd like to get a comment from you. And I could tell the columnist believed George Herbert Walker Bush and (laughs) sure didn't believe me. And I said, do you have a fax number? Yes, I do. I said, I'm going to fax you a cover of the Doug Weed book written with George Herbert Walker Bush and the page that I've quoted. And he called back. I said, excuse me, I think your next call should be to President Bush. So he called President Bush. And this time, Bush had his representative say, well, uh, the president forgot that he wrote that book with Doug Weed, but he still stands by the fact that Kitty Kelly is a liar and a smear artist. That's tough when the president of the United States does it. Reagan did it, too. And first of all, they're not dead people. And second of all, they're immensely powerful people. Um, The Oprah book, did not do as well as you thought, though I think I heard you say once it sold 900,000 copies, which the rest of us would be somewhat delirious with happiness about. Do you attribute that just to the fact that the audience for books is ebbing? I think at that time, yes, book sales have increased now, but at that particular time they hadn't, and they were decreasing because of audio books. Also, Oprah called it a so-called biography. And, you know, it was a pretty frank biography about Oprah. But I saw it as Oprah being the epitome of the American dream. And she was and is to this day, but came up in a hard, hard way. And I think she was very, very upset 
when she was young, she'd gotten pregnant, and she'd had the baby. And I found the birth certificate and the hospital records, and then the baby died. And her father gave me a really long, long interview and said, you know, this was her chance, and she made the most of it, and so forth and so on. So Oprah was very, very upset about the revelations in the book and was also upset that her father had spoken so freely. Why is it helpful to tell people that Jackie O had electric shock treatments or that Oprah had well, a baby you, when she was young? Uh, I do think that biography, it's a life story. And that means the up and the down, the good and the bad, the black and the white, uh, get to the gray in between. Nobody is all one thing. And I do think in telling a life story that those things are important. They make people very human. And especially if you're telling a success story. You know, I wouldn't write an unauthorized biography about just anyone. It has to really be someone who's like a president, who's influenced our lives and our policies and how we live. Shifting subject, Shelby Foote, the great Civil War writer, said that he always wrote in pajamas. He would get up every morning, he saw no reason to shower and shave and put on, on work clothes, and sometimes he'd be in his pajamas for two or three weeks at a time uh, until he had to go teach a class. So tell us a little bit about your writing process. Well, I'm a cross between Shelby Foote and Robert Carroll, who says he gets up every day and puts a tie on to go to the library. It depends what stage of the book I'm in, but I really do keep office hours, and I go to an office, but I also write at home. Uh, the last biography I wrote was before my husband died, and he was saying, oh, God, I'll be so glad when this book is over. I would wake up at 3.30, and I'd say, honey, hand me a, a piece of, oh, man, please go to sleep, go to sleep. No, no, I have to write this down. I have to, well, you get crazed. You absolutely are beset by this book that's trying to get out of you, and you're trying to get it to the publisher, and you're way past deadline, and you don't think you'll ever do it. And I do remember waking up, and I would write down notes and think that these were words <laughs> sent from God that had to get into the book. And the next morning, I'd wake up, and I'd think, what drunk wrote <laughs> these words? Do you write in longhand when you write? Do you write on a computer? I do both. I write in longhand. I write at the computer. Then I go back and forth and back and forth. What's the most compelling argument that someone can make to a widow or a child or a best friend of somebody that you're writing about to convince them that full disclosure, full cooperation is in everybody's interest? I have found that in doing these books, establishing relationships is really important. And you don't have much time when you go in to interview someone. So by your very persona, you have got to say, 
you can trust me. And I don't know how to do that all the time. Well, it's amazing to hear that confession because it certainly looks like you've been very successful. I have been. Um, There have also been times when I've had the door slammed. But keeping your word, I find, is very, very important because... I mean, we're talking serious sources. Um, And if you've really given your word of honor, there was a lot at stake for them to talk to you. Were you ever afraid that somebody was going to run you over in a crosswalk? When I got scared was in April of 1991 when the Nancy Reagan book was published and an advance story appeared in the front page of the Sunday New York Times on this book that had been under wraps. And I had a book party at the National Press Club, and they introduced me, and I was standing up there. And at the time, my husband was courting, and he came up to say, you know, hi. And a man pushed him away, and there was a man standing behind me. And I looked at him, and I said, who are you? I want to marry him. Don't push him away. (laughs) And he said, I've been hired by the publisher. He said, we've had too many threats. So the real threats came with the Nancy Reagan book. If you're writing about Frank Sinatra, that's mob power. What do they want to do? If you're writing about Ronald Reagan... And trust me, you cannot write about Ronald Reagan unless you write about Nancy Reagan. You could write about other presidents and not include their wives, but not the Reagans. That was a real twofer. And when you're writing about the president of the United States, you're writing about real power. And that was a lesson to me. Because writing about live figures who are powerful wealthy and have access to lawyers right away that frightens publishers. But I just felt it was so important at that particular time to get a record. A historian will say, you can't write about someone and get full picture of who they are unless you wait 100 years. I don't think so. I think you write right away and gather everything you can at that particular time. I have files that would be so valuable now as we're sitting here in 2020. Even the newspaper clips that I have from papers that are long gone out of business and were never archived. And without that you lose an awful lot of the story you're trying to tell. I never have thought of doing an authorized biography because in doing an authorized biography, you have to give that person editorial control, and that means you will delete and lose so much. Although someone that was able to do it quite well was William Manchester when he wrote Death of the President. And he got Jacqueline Kennedy's full authorization, and she opened up everybody to him. And then, of course, there was a huge lawsuit because Mrs. Kennedy did not 
want him to report all that he had reported, and he had to make several deletions. I just never thought of writing an authorized biography. At the time that I was writing these books, I would never have done them without a publisher who believed in what I was doing and had the legal insurance to cover. Now, sitting here in the cold light of day in 2020, more guts than brains. (laughs) No. I mean, I don't know how I undertook some of the subjects I did. Yeah. One last, one last question. Who would you have loved to have done a book on that you, you missed out because somebody else did it or the time passed and you just realized that, oh, I should have done that when I had the chance? God, what a great question. I can't think of someone. I was offered the chance to do a book on Hillary Clinton But by that time, even I had had a belly full. As influential as she was, it's almost like falling in love. You really have to love your subject and believe in your subject so much that you'll keep pushing through when it gets tough Um, because you're going to be married to the subject for some time. And I guess I just hadn't fallen in love. But I do think there's room on the shelf for the authorized biography and the unauthorized biography. That was veteran biographer Kitty Kelly in conversation with bio member and author John Farrell, recorded on February 7, 2020 in Washington, D.C. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day.